So, Revelation chapter 14 today. The last couple of chapters, last few weeks as we've studied through them, uh, we've been given very symbolic pictures. And uh, John made it clear that that's what it was when he said a great sign appeared in heaven. And actually, he's, he's been speaking of all of these different signs that have appeared. And so uh, we know that a sign is not a literal object. When he talks about the woman, uh, that it's not a woman, it's representative of something. In this case, the woman is Israel. And we talked a lot about that the last couple of weeks. Uh, John says that she is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, the garland of 12 stars, uh, which is pointing back to Genesis, where Joseph has a dream, and it concerns the patriarchs of Israel. So Joseph, his mother, his father, his brothers are seen as the sun, moon, and the stars. Uh, so the woman that we see in this picture, this great sign that's given, is of Israel, and the woman is about to bring forth a son, which is Jesus. That Jesus the Messiah had to come through Israel. And tons of prophecy about him being born of the house of David and in the line of Judah and all of those things. Um, we also saw the fiery red dragon, uh, which was made very clear that this is a picture of the devil. Not that the devil looks like a fiery red dragon. And that's what some people have taken that to an extreme. And of course, they picture... The guy in the red suit with the horns and the pitchfork and the tail. And that's not what the devil looks like at all. That he appears as an angel of light. He was one of the archangels in heaven. He's a created being. He's not eternal as far as like existing in the eternity past. He was created. But uh, so this is a picture of his character. Ferocious, vicious, murderous. And he wears ten crowns upon his head, which are all stolen. That he has is, he is taken that authority of himself. He has made himself king. And the reason that he is out to kill the child that the woman brings forth is because that child will remove his crown, will take away his authority and bring him to an end. The child was born and taken up into heaven. And... Uh, and we've been seeing these other signs, the beast that comes out of the sea, which is the Antichrist, the beast that comes out of the earth, which is the false prophet. And, and we've been taken to the midpoint of the tribulation thus far, that last seven-year period of this age of mankind, the worst seven years to ever exist on the earth. And we're taken to the midpoint there, and, and by chapter 13, it seems pretty bleak. Chapter 13 is like, the dark black moment of, of Revelation. You know, I mean, in any good story, there's the black moment where all hope seems to be lost. The enemy seems to be winning. Everybody that, that you were hoping and are pulling for, they're in this place of chaos. And in chapter 13, that's what it seems like. The Antichrist, empowered by Satan himself, has waged war against the saints and has overcome them or is overcoming them. Israel has fled from the Antichrist and is being kept safe. But again, they're, they're taken out of the picture to, as a nation. And, and it's a pretty bleak time. For the next four chapters, we're going to be getting kind of an overview of the rest of the three and a half years. 
And what we're going to see is, is that at that midpoint of the tribulation, while it seems like the enemy has got everything under control and he's winning everywhere he goes, it's actually where everything starts falling apart. And even here in this chapter, again, we're going to get it's an overview of what's to come. And we're going to see the Lord bringing victory after victory after victory. Um, again, some very broad strokes that are taken. We're going to make some, some big jumps as we get kind of the overview. And it's a little bit difficult because, as I've talked about, Revelation has a chronological order to it. We don't want to try and slice it up and change things around. But in this chapter, along with a few other places, we get like, okay, and this is what's about to happen. This is where things are going, and then those details are going to get filled in. And so that's what we're going to get here in chapter 14. Uh, and we're going to see the details get filled in really through the rest of, all the way through chapter 19, the things that we're going to even see today. Uh, so let's pray, and we will get into chapter 14. Lord God, again, we just desperately want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we give you this time. Give us ears to hear. We pray that you would remove the distractions from our mind and from our hearts and from around us that we just would not miss a thing that you have for us. We pray that your word would be planted in our hearts as good seed to bring forth good fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him... 144,000, having his father's name written on their forehead. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God, to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The last time we saw the 144,000 was in chapter 7. And just to give a little recap on who these people are, is that when the rapture takes place, the church is removed, and the tribulation begins, these are men of Israel that are going to come to know Christ. Now, they don't know Jesus. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that they are opposed, very much opposed to the idea of Jesus being the Messiah before the rapture. But when Jesus comes on the clouds and the whole world will see it, that great and mighty sign in heaven of the Son of Man, these 144,000 are going to realize who he is and are going to have a change of heart. Um, and I think there's some very cool similarities between how I picture these guys, and I don't want to make that clear, how I picture these 144,000 and, and who they become after the, the rapture of the church, I think they're very similar to the Apostle Paul. But these guys are probably very fired up. They're probably Orthodox Jews. They're not just casual observers in, in the Jewish faith. 
that they're very involved, as the Apostle Paul was. But their zeal is misguided until Jesus comes to the church. And then it's going to click. The veil will be lifted, and they're going to go, he is the Messiah after all. And they are going to be unleashed on the earth to bring the gospel worldwide. And they're unstoppable. These guys, in the very worst time in the history of the entire world, are going to be serving in the hardest ministry of delivering the gospel. And, and they're unstoppable. There was 144,000 of them in chapter 7, and there still is 144,000. Not one of them has been lost. With all the chaos and craziness, here we find them on Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, and there's still 144,000 of them. Now, again, this is a, a little bit confusing, and honestly, I, I'm not sure whether this is speaking of the, an event that will take place right about the midpoint of the tribulation, or whether this is, again, an overview. This is something that's going to take place a little bit past that. Um, and honestly, we don't really need to know that right now, uh, because... The point is that here this 144,000 gather from the entire earth to the most dangerous place they could be, Jerusalem. Israel's already been run off. The Antichrist has already set up the image in the temple and demand that people worship it, what we looked at last week. And these guys who have been unyielding in preaching Jesus Christ everywhere they go, go to Jerusalem of all places. But again, we also see that they are not alone. There they are in Jerusalem, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is standing there with them. Now, again, I think this is something that we're being shown through the Scriptures that John saw by Revelation, but the world doesn't see this. The next time the world will see Jesus Christ on the earth, it's at Armageddon, and it's not a good situation. But the Lamb has been leading the 144,000 every step of the way. He's been right there with them. And this is speaking of that relationship that these people have with Jesus. That's uh, a whole other level. I mean, not that we don't have a relationship. Not that people in the tribulation who get saved won't have a relationship. Absolutely, they will. But there is something different about the relationship of the 144,000. And they are deeply connected with Jesus. It says that the mark of God the Father is upon their foreheads. And again, I like, uh, you know, the comparison there, right? We talked about the mark of the beast last week, that every person will receive it on their hand or on their forehead, right? That's a counterfeit to the mark of the Holy Spirit that is upon our lives. And for the 144,000, it is a tangible mark upon their foreheads. It sets them apart. There's no hiding who they are. Everywhere they go, people go, that's only 144,000. I guess you wear a big hat, maybe. That's not going to be their character, right? These guys are going to be bold in, in sharing the Lord everywhere they go. Um, and again, we see this great connection with Jesus and, and with heaven itself. And this is the part that I, I, I get goosebumps every time I, I think about this, because in verse 3, uh, we see this connection 
is in worship. That there in heaven, John hears a new song that breaks out. That there's the, the playing of harps and there's singing of this new song, but it's a song that's taking place in heaven before the throne of God. And no one can learn this song. No one can know it, understand it, which to me is pointing to its amazing importance and power. And the only people that can know it are the 144,000 who are on the earth. Again, there's this connection, right, between heaven and earth that's made in worship. And it's great for us to remember that. Well, again, it's a different level for the 144,000. It is still true for us. And, and to really consider and remember, take in the importance and the power of worship. I think too often we can kind of take it as like, um, it's just part of the program. It, it's the songs while people arrive. It's the songs that happen before the Bible study. Um, and, and I know that none of us really believe that or would say that, but we can kind of just start letting that taking place in our, in our mind and in our heart, right? Because I know that we're also very good at looking like we're in worship when our mind is a million miles away. <laughs> Thinking about lunch. What are we going to get for lunch? You know, hands raised. Did I turn the oven off? Did I put the cat out? And, but on the outside, we've, we've got that, right? We, we can look. We're worshiping. We're into it, you know, whatever we're doing. But we also know that for all of us, our minds can be far away. We can be distant, right? And, and there's something so powerful about worship. Then when we take the time to go, no, Lord, remove those distractions, remove those thoughts, I'm going to choose to worship you right now. And whatever song we're singing, the words of that song become a prayer from us to the Lord. Right? And again, this is the part that I, I wish I understood it better, but when just the, the idea of considering it always gives me goosebumps. Is that you know the message that goes on in heaven all the time is how glorious and good the Lord is? How holy he is and how righteous he is, how beautiful and his, his love is for us. That's the message that's continually on loop in heaven, in fresh new ways, constantly being, it's that same message over and over again. When we enter into worship, we're in unity with that message. We're, we're aligning ourselves with the truth of heaven, though we are here on earth. In all of our craziness and busyness and schedules and, and things that have to be done, we can connect to the supernatural power of heaven itself, and it puts all of this life into perspective. Man, it is such a great opportunity, and yet so easy for us to miss it. And, and like I said, kind of fake it. If we, whereas we really just enter in. Powerful, powerful. Gives us the right perspective of the things that are behind, and it prepares us for the things that are ahead. And it just gets our hearts right. Gets our minds right. Um, now, verses 4 and 5 bring out a couple of interesting things about the 144,000. Uh, things that concern their lives before they got saved and their ministry after and the integrity that these people have 
as they serve the Lord. Um, concerning their lives before, again, I, I think that they're probably similar to the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul did a lot of things wrong, but he was motivated to be right on the outside, right? I mean, Paul was pretty bold, and, and even at one point said, you know, that he was perfect in according to the law. That is a pretty bold statement. But he isn't saying he's perf- he was perfect or sinless. What he, Paul was saying is, is that according to the letter of the law that all the Jewish leaders pointed to, no one could find fault with his life, right? And I believe that these people will be very much the same because we see that they don't come out of a life of like debauchery and partying and causing trouble or rebellion. That these are people that for one reason or another, whether it's because of the law or because of their own uh, convictions, they've led a pretty moral life. That they have not defiled themselves with women. They haven't been chasing women around or, or had sexual relationships of any kind. They're virgins. Now, again, this is before they got saved. And when they are saved, again, there's that intense connection with the Lord. That they follow Him wherever He goes. That when the Lord just says, hey, we're going here, let's do it. Even to Jerusalem, at the very worst time that they could ever be there. They hear the Lord, and follow after Him. And again, these are going to be those that lead many people to the Lord. Uh, I I think when we were in chapter 7, I said it's going to be like 144,000 Billy Grahams unleashed on the earth. And then somebody had a really great question. They're like, well, where does it say that in the Scriptures? And and to be honest, there isn't anything that tells us they're going to be evangelists necessarily, or street preachers, or that they're going to be people that are uh, even holding Bible studies. But what we are told, and what it points to, is that in verse 4, that they are the first fruits of God and to the Lamb. That when these guys get saved, they're going to be the first, I believe, out of Israel to get saved. And then God is going to lead them everywhere He wants them to go to bring others to the Lord. They are the first fruits. But there's a lot of other people that are going to get saved because of them. We don't know exactly the details on how that's going to be. And so, yeah, a little bit presumptuous of me to say they're going to be like Billy Graham. But they are going to be used mightily, one way or another, and they are going to bring people to the Lord because they're the first fruits, and they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now, the other thing that is cool is that they are going to continue this ministry during the tribulation, with an absolute bravery and integrity. Again, there's going to be a lot of people during the tribulation who will lie, cheat, and steal to do whatever they can to survive. That will not be the 144,000. Verse 5 says, In their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne. Now that does not mean that they are without sin. Because twice it says that they were redeemed from men. So their sin was paid for just like our sin was paid for. They were redeemed at the cross by Jesus Christ. Um, These guys are going to be powerful. 
used mightily. And the Lord is going to be right there with him. But again, they're saved the same way that we're saved. They're saved the same way people throughout the tribulation will be saved. It is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All right, verse 6. Verse 6 says, And then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea the spr- and the springs of water, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they will have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is patience of the saints And here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Again, we talked about it in the tribulation. The supernatural will be an everyday occurrence. People will no longer wonder if demons and angels exist. People are not going to wonder if Jesus is who he said he is. They're going to see him come for the church. They're going to see angels flying. They're going to see demons and all of those things. And here we see something that we haven't seen so far. The angels themselves are proclaiming the gospel to the entire earth, warning everybody. Now, again, some people will try and take this and turn it into a symbolic picture and go, oh, it's not really talking about angels. It's actually referring to something else, and they'll make up a meaning. Or they'll try and dismiss it by saying it's actually speaking of some communication technology, like a satellite. Uh, Also, not the case. We know that because John does not say, I saw another sign, meaning it becomes a symbolic picture for us. Neither does he say, I saw something like an angel. He says, I saw another angel flying in heaven. So what is it? It's an angel, right? We don't even need to try and change that. Um, And that he's speaking about an angel who's flying around the earth. Uh, It's given to us in a couple ways, but one of them says, in the midst of heaven literally means mid-heaven. It's the, the word that would be used for the air around our planet, right? Now, if I was God's PR guy, I would have chosen angels from the beginning. You know, and just went, okay, people, I get it. You love them. They're fine, I guess. But angels, people, listen to them, right? They're big. 
They're scary looking. Most of them have swords, apparently. And so if they were like street evangelizing, people are probably going to give them their attention, right? Sure, okay, whatever you want. But this is the first time that we see angels like this, man, just preaching it everywhere, worldwide. And, and they're following like in this procession. Again, I, I would love to see what this looks like. That this angel is flying in the midst of heaven, and the first one is proclaiming the good news that this, the gospel is still available. And he says, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The message is, it's not too late. It's not too late. No matter what's taken place so far, whatever's been done to survive in the tribulation, you can still repent and be saved. And that message goes out to everyone. Again, the question that ha- comes up so often today is, well, what about the people who never hear the gospel? That won't even be a question. Because every tribe, every person, every language worldwide will hear, if from no one else, this angel. Now the second angel comes with a warning. It says Babylon is fallen. We're going to look more at Babylon as we get to chapters 17 and 18. And again, this is why this is, a, this is the overview. This is them saying these are the events that are about to happen, but they're so sure. It's like they've already taken place. But Babylon, uh, whether that is the actual name of the city or not, probably not. Said we'll study more about it when we get to it in 17 and 18. It's the same idea as the original Babylon, though, and the building of the tower. The whole idea is to say, God, we don't need you. Look at how great we are on our own. Look at how wise we are on our own. Look at how we have this ability all without you, God. That's what Babylon's all about. And this world system, which I think involves a lot, so it's not just the city of Babylon that we'll talk about later, it's the world system of this one world government and this one world religion and all these things that man has created for themselves. And the angel is saying that is all about to fall apart. That what you're putting your trust in, what you're putting your hope in, where you're storing your treasure up is all going to crumble very, very soon. Again, the warning is, or the message is, but it's not too late now. Babylon is fallen. Don't trust in that. You can still be saved. The third angel comes with probably the most terrifying warning of all. and says, if anyone worships the beast, his image, or receives their mark, they will be lost forever. Again, people ask questions about the mark because we have trouble understanding all the details of how that'll be. You know, I've had people say, well, what if you got it on accident? Nobody's going to wake up after like a hard night drinking and get this new tattoo and go, what? Where'd that come from? Mark of the Beast, you know. It's not going to happen on accident. Nobody's going to pick the wrong number in the tattoo parlor and go, oh, that's not the one I wanted. It's... It is so much more. Other people say, well, what if somebody gets it? 
But they don't really worship the Jews. They just act like they do. But they really love Jesus. Nope. It won't work. Because this is an absolute and final dividing line. And we've seen that in other ways, right? The Lord coming for the church is one. And, and you know, I believe just the gospel going out during this time has caused people to decide, am I for Jesus or am I against Jesus? Am I for the kingdom of earth or the kingdom of heaven? This mark is the final dividing line. It will cause each and every person to have to make a choice. Either they will take the mark and be lost, or they will not take the mark and lose their lives. But it's one or the other. And so there isn't anything about the mark that is going to be unknown or come by a surprise. People will understand that they are making an absolute choice. Now, one of the other uh, misunderstandings when it comes to the mark is that by taking it, you commit the unforgivable sin. Yes and no. And it's important we understand what that is. The unforgivable sin, it's also called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not an act you do or a set of words that you say. It is choosing unbelief. That when all the evidence has been presented, when you've been given the gospel, and you've been brought to that point of decision, and you go, I choose not to believe any of that. If you die in that state, you can't be forgiven. Right? If you choose not to believe, forgiveness will not be forced upon anyone. And so that's why it's the unforgivable sin. Right? Is that a choice is made, and people who die in that state, their, their opportunity has been lost. The person who makes that statement, I said, I'll never believe. Hey, as long as they're alive, they can change their mind. They can choose to believe the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is basically telling the Holy Spirit, you're a liar. I don't believe you. And if our hearts are unchanged, man's heart is unchanged, they're lost. Now, as it comes to the mark, again, this is a choice that people are making. That they are looking at the evidence that's been presented, Jesus coming for the church, all of the things that have taken place, the supernatural being unleashed upon the earth, and the gospel being preached to all mankind. And they're saying, no, I will store up my treasure in the kingdom of earth instead. I will take that mark. I will follow the beast and his image and the one who has given him authority. It's a choice. And the scary thing about it is, is that it isn't that once a person gets that mark, if, if they were to change their mind, that God would reject them. That's not the case. It's that once they take their, that mark, they will never change their mind. That if mankind went on for a thousand years after this, the same dividing line would still stand. And those who had not taken the mark, none of them will ever get saved, ever. They will be lost, and they won't just be lost for a little while. They won't just be lost for a thousand years. Verse 11 says that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And here the angel is giving them one more chance, pleading with 
sinful mankind. Just believe. Just believe. That's all you've got to do. They're working so much harder to not believe. But the dividing line is drawn. Everyone will make a choice. And there will be no more excuses because the harvest of mankind is coming. Verse 14, it says, And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had the power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vines of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled out, outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Again, this is the overview of things that we're going to see the details in chapters 15 through 19. We're told that one, like the Son of Man, is on this cloud, and on his head is a golden crown. Most agree that this is Jesus. Uh, there are other things that people point to, but most likely, and I believe, that this is the Lord himself. Uh, and this is why some people believe that the uh, tribute, or excuse me, the rapture of the church will take place at the midpoint in the tribulation. That they'll look to this and they'll go, well, here's Jesus on the cloud and he, he reaps from the earth. Um, the problem with that is, is that whenever the harvest is talked about, whether that's in the Gospels or really any place, it never has to do with the rapture. It always has to do with salvation. And this, that's really the, the context of this whole chapter, is the salvation of mankind. And this is pointing to a day, not far from where we're at here in Revelation, where everyone who will be saved is saved. And everyone who does not want Jesus will never be saved. And at that point, the Lord will harvest salvation from the earth. And it's done. Again, it's a terrifying thing. The idea that if, if the world were to continue a thousand years after that, no one else would ever get saved. It's the final reaping of salvation of mankind. Now, there is an, another harvest that is not of salvation, but of wrath. This second angel, or this other angel that comes out of the temple, also having a, a sharp sickle, is told to go and gather the grapes. Um, and grapes are not a picture of a good thing. In fact, they are specifically thrown into the vat of God's 
wrath. Uh, this is pointing to chapter 19, uh, the day of Armageddon. And again, we'll get into more of that when we get to chapter 19. But it's, it's a horrible event that takes place. The armies of the earth that are left will all gather together there in the plains of Megiddo and it, this massive area, and they will all go there to battle against each other, but they'll end up turning their weapons toward the Lord when he arrives. And he, he cuts them all down. But the wrath of God falls upon everybody there. And it's heavy duty. I mean, it talks about blood flowing to the horse's bridle. The idea is a river of blood running from that place about yay high. And a furlong, the distance that's given to us here, is about 160 miles. So it's brutal that takes place. Again, this is all pointing to things that are going to take place. And it puts in context the message of the angels that they're not just arbitrarily throwing out, hey, you guys should get saved. It's a good idea. You'll be happy, right? It's that these things are about to take place. This judgment is about to fall. This, this day of wrath, that blood will be to the horse's bridle, is not far away. And they're begging mankind, just be saved. Just come to Jesus Christ. Just believe. Worship the God of heaven. Again, for us, we look at it, and though we don't have that deep connection that the 144,000 have, in many ways we have the same message to the world that the angels also have, right? We're, we're to go out in the world to let people know, hey, it's not too late. You haven't gone too far. And that's probably what I've heard more than anything else, people going, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. The blood of Jesus cleanses away all sin. Brings salvation to every tribe, tongue, language, people worldwide. None are left out. And we get to bring that same message, whether that's sharing in the workplace or in our family or in our community, wherever it might be, to let people know, hey, it's not too late. You haven't gone too far. And then I think for us personally, we're also, we've got this same warning on a different level. Hey, that we're not buying in to this world system. We're not falling for the tricks of Babylon. We're not starting to look to this world to store up treasure. We know that it's all going to fade away. It's all going to be removed. And that only the kingdom of Jesus Christ will stand forever. And we are those, like the 144,000, that want to be led everywhere Jesus leads us. Wherever that might be. Wherever we get that opportunity to share. Wherever we get that place to bring that message to let people know, hey, Jesus loves you. And that we would follow him wherever he goes and sing a new song in our life and to this lost world. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's pray.